Let's open up to the book of Revelation now. We are in the book of Revelation uh, together, of course, and we're in chapter 16, Revelation chapter 16. The title of today's message is The Righteousness of God Revealed in Just Judgment. Yes, more judgment. Yes, more wrath today. It is the book of Revelation after all, though we are nearing a corner soon in the next couple of weeks that we will turn and uh, get some, to some different material. But Revelation chapter 16 today, we're going to cover the whole chapter, Lord willing. We'll just read the first verse though right now, just kind of set the tone so we know what's coming, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1, John receiving this vision says, and I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you as we always do for your word, for all of your word. And Lord, we've been in a book that contains a lot of difficult stuff and we we thank you for it because it is truth and it's ultimately good. And we just ask that today you would help us to navigate it in a way that would inspire faith and obedience in us, in a way that would bring hope about the future in the person of Jesus Christ and, Lord, what you intend to do in our world for our good and for your own glory. And I ask that you please help me to teach your word in a way that's helpful to these dear brothers and sisters whom I love and that is faithful to you, our Lord, Savior, and King. Give us understanding of your word. Help us to live according to it for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask these things together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you that are new here, maybe there's some of you, we are studying the book of Revelation together, as I said, and that's our normal habit is that we study books of the Bible together. We'll just start at the beginning of a book and we'll just go through verse by verse and study the whole thing. And we just happen to be in a doozy right now. The book of Revelation, I'll be honest, is a doozy of a book. You no doubt have heard about it. You may have no experience with the scriptures whatsoever, but you've heard various things about the book of Revelation, and we've been in it for some time now. And the book of Revelation is a doozy for this reason. The book of Revelation is about the end of the world. The book of Revelation is about the end of the world as we know it, but not perhaps in the way that you may think. The book of Revelation is not meant to be doom and gloom, though there are certainly some difficult realities in it. But the book of Revelation is meant to be hope and joy in the person of Jesus Christ, even though it is about the end of the world. But it tells us that the end of the world is often, or is, excuse me, different than most of culture would assume. The world is not destroyed by some out-of-control war. The world is not destroyed by some unexpected catastrophe. Nor is the world destroyed by God or thrown away by God. Rather, the end of the world as we know it is the fact that evil wickedness, and sin are confronted, judged, and done away with. That's what we're talking about. The end of the world in a sense. The evil, wickedness, and sin are confronted, 
judged and done away with and their effects in the world will one day be reversed. This is what the book of Revelation tells us. But this in and of itself, the judgment of sin, the confrontation of wickedness is catastrophic because sin and wickedness are pervasive in the world and their scope and their effects are far-reaching. And so when Jesus comes a judging, when Jesus comes to deal with wickedness, when he comes to touch in order to renew and restore everything that sin and wickedness have broken and destroyed, it is, in a very real sense, catastrophic because of the scope and the measure of the effects of sin. But rather than destroying the world or allowing evil to destroy the world, what the book of Revelation tells us is that God will renew the world and bring us all together into an existence ruled by righteousness, justice, and love rather than evil, wickedness, and sin. Think about it. Think about the hope and the joy that is, that we are looking forward to a new world ruled by righteousness, justice, and love rather than the pervasive wickedness, evil, and sin that we often see ruling the world today. But in order to do that, in order to usher in the fullness of his kingdom and an age of righteousness, justice, and love ruling under Jesus Christ, in order for that to be accomplished, it is clear that God must judge all things in opposition to that, all things contrary to righteousness, all things in opposition to true justice, all things that are counter to true love have to be dealt with by God if he's going to bring us to the new world of righteousness, justice, and love. And that is much of what the book of Revelation is about. And that is what the chapter before us today is about. And as we move through it, we'll see as much of the book of Revelation has been that it is communicated in stark and unapologetic terms, excuse me. It uses imagery and symbolism that are both evocative and provocative. Therefore, reading and studying the book of Revelation can be, as many of us know and some of us suspect, quite uncomfortable. Especially for this reason. Here's where we turn it on ourselves. It can be uncomfortable seeing God confront wickedness and sin because we realize that all of us at times are a party to wickedness, participants in evil, and guilty of sin. And so when we see God confronting them in stark, absolute, harsh ways, it can be uncomfortable for us. Because to one degree or another, and for those with whom we relate and are connected to, we are a party to the very things that God is is intending to deal with. These things that he confronts in the book of Revelation are often our things. 
or we are at least participants or to some degree culpable in the things that must be dealt with in order for there to be the age of righteousness, justice, and love. That is why we need Jesus. That is why we need the truth that Christ died on the cross in our place and rose from the dead that we might have the forgiveness of sins and new life. We need that because we ourselves have been a party to evil, wickedness, and sin. And so we need the forgiveness of sin. We need deliverance from evil. Jesus is the one when we put faith in him and his finished work upon the cross, who delivers us from the domain of darkness, which will be judged and transfers us to the kingdom of the beloved son, which is forever. Jesus is the one through our faith in him who delivers us from the wrath to come. It says in the book of Thessalonians, there is wrath to come. There is need, there is hope of deliverance from it. And Jesus is the only one who delivers us from the wrath of come, wrath to come, excuse me, through the forgiveness of sins. We need to be delivered. Because God is just, and therefore God judges all sin and every sin. You see, we have sins that we think of as minor sins. Or humanity has sins that they think of minor sins. We have sins that we think ought to be overlooked that aren't that bad in comparison to other things. So can't we just all get along and let it go? But God is just. And so God will judge all sin. And so we need a savior who forgives and delivers from the judgment of sin, Christ who is judged in our place, that we might have newness of life. And so I'll ask every one of you here today, have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? If you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, then wrath is coming to you. Your sins will be dealt with God is just. He will deal with all of them and they were either dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ and you accept his death in your place and put your faith and trust in that or you will have to answer for your own sins. The book of Revelation is humanity answering for their sins. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? He's the only one who can deliver us from the wrath to come. He's the only one who delivers us from the domain of darkness into his kingdom of righteousness, love, truth, hope, peace, and that which is eternal. And because that is true, the book of Revelation teaches us that we can celebrate God's judgment. We can celebrate God's justice, though it's difficult We can celebrate it because in actuality, as I've already alluded to, God's judgment, God's wrath, and God's justice are hope. God's judgment, God's wrath, and God's justice are love. Because if God is a God of love, then God must judge sin. I want you to think about that for a moment. 
It's not a loving God who will just let sin go. Here's where we get tripped up. We think a loving God will let my sin go, but a loving God will certainly deal with those who have sinned against me. That's the way that we think. You see, that's a failure. That's our egocentric thinking. That's our sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh man, I'm having a hard time speaking this morning. What is the word I'm looking for? No, but just go ahead and throw words out. You, you might get lucky. That is our, I got the word. That's our relative mindset as it pertains to morality, as it pertains to truth, as it pertains to our own actions. We think, well, mine aren't that bad. And a God of love would just let them go like a nice, happy grandpa. But we think about the sins of others. And you know, our sin always looks worse on someone else. Can I get a, oh yeah, that's true. Oh yeah, that's true. Right? We look and we're like, I can't believe him. And then we look in the mirror and we're like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. So we stumble on that point a little bit. But if we take it to extremes, if we take it to its logical conclusion, we realize that if God is a God of love, then God must judge sin. Because think about the more heinous evil in the world. How can we say a God of love is not going to judge the molesters, the rapists, the Hitlers of our time? The oppressors, the traffickers, the abusers, the murderers. We would never think that a God would overlook those things and still be a God of love. See, but he's not just a God of love. He's a God of perfect justice who doesn't have a relative. There's the word, a relative scale like we do. He has an absolute scale according to his holiness and he will judge all sin. If he's a just God of love, he must. Therefore, though, it's difficult when we look at his judgment, his justice, and his wrath in the world, it communicates to us love, a God of love. And it communicates to us hope, hope. For could you imagine an existence where there was no hope of evil being confronted? One of our hope was merely in the U.S. government. That was the best that we had. One of our hope was just in the U.N., the United Nations. Oh, gee whiz. There'd be no hope in that. For evil throughout history, not just in our own age, but throughout history. Think about our world today. Can you imagine just if all we had was, well, maybe it'll get better. Maybe we'll do something. And maybe those, see, we have a greater hope that Jesus Christ is coming again to confront and undo all the wrong of history. And so these things, as hard as they are, they communicate to us a God who loves. And they give us great hope because we know that the suffering that we feel today is an ultimate. We know that the evil that we see in the world today will not ultimately win. We know that the death and the suffering and the pain that we experience is not final. There's a greater finality. There's a greater ultimate, Christ our Lord, who is coming to judge all evil and to undo all that has gone wrong and to bring us into a new world. This is hope. This is love. Revelation tells us that there is a better end, one of justice 
and a new beginning, one of righteousness. So this has been somewhat of a recap of the tone and tenor of the book of Revelation because we've been out of it for a few weeks. And these things have been described to us, I'll remind us, by the means of symbolism. This is a vision that John is receiving from God about the end of the world, described by him in vivid terms. And I want us to remember as we look at some of the stuff in this chapter that the descriptions that John is giving us are descriptions of the symbols, not necessarily the reality behind them. They're descriptions of the symbols, not necessarily the reality behind them. There is a reality, a literal thing or truth behind them, but he's describing the symbols that he's seeing in the vision. For example, he sees Jesus as a lamb. Symbol. Jesus is not a lamb. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, son of God, preexistent, existing forever, co-eternal with God in glory on the throne. He's not a lamb. It's a symbol. It means something though, right? The lamb who was slain for us, the sacrificial lamb who died in our stead. Satan is pictured as a big red dragon. He's not a red dragon. He has horns. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Symbolism. The Antichrist is pictured as that beast with 10 horns and seven heads. It's not that there's a future world leader who will really come up out of the ocean and he'll have 10 horns and seven heads. Symbolism. Picturing this grotesque future world ruler who will be a man, the scriptures are clear, the Antichrist. So the descriptions are descriptions of the symbols, not necessarily the reality they convey, though there is a reality behind them. Sometimes those realities are difficult to discern. And so sometimes we say that because we just want to be honest and say, I don't know when I don't know. Sometimes I'll have an opinion, it is strong, and you can discern it. Other times we'll say, well, it could be that it's this and it could be that it's that. That's okay. In the end, we'll all know. But we must remember that John is communicating this stuff to us through imagery and symbolism. And some of the more important symbolisms, symbolisms, excuse me, have been seals, trumpets, and bowls. These are the means by which the wrath of God has been unleashed on the world. Remember that Jesus took the scroll from God which was God's judgment on the earth, and he broke the seven seals. And each time he broke a seal, judgment came forth. And then after that came the trumpets. And each time an angel blew a trumpet, judgment came forth. And now as we see, these angels in this vision are commanded to pour forth the bowls. Again, symbolism, imagery of God unleashing his wrath on the world, a world in rebellion. And if you'll notice, these trumpets and these seals and these bowls are both progressive and parallel. Hasn't it seemed to you several times like the book of Revelation has ended? God will pour out wrath and pour out wrath and pour out wrath and they'll say, it's finished. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. Hallelujah. God has avenged his people and established his righteousness. And then we get to the next chapter and it's more wrath and more wrath and more wrath and we're wondering, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is multiple choice endings or what's going on here? They're parallel. It's as if John is giving us a kaleidoscope view of the wrath of God. 
It's as though there's several mirrors around it and we're seeing different facets of it from different places and spaces and different degrees of it, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. And yet there is some progression. They get progressively worse. And so now as we get to the end, we're seeing the worst of it. The word bowl here in the Greek denotes more of a flat saucer so that when there's liquid in it and it's tipped out, it all comes out together suddenly and fully. So they're parallel, but there's progression. And what we're seeing today is the worst of it. God's wrath poured out in its full strength. We have many sermons on the fact that God's wrath was brought to us or brought to the world rather patiently and progressively. No mas. No more patience. No more progressive. No more extensions of mercy. This is full tilt the bowl's wrath. Verse 2. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. So, right there. God causes on people there to be loathsome, malignant sores. It begs the question, is that, is John describing the picture there? Or the pictures, is it something else? Is it like a lamb and a dragon type thing? Or are people at this point really going to get these malignant open sores that fester? I don't know the answer to that. It could be either one. But if they're real sores, it's not as though God hasn't done that throughout history. God did these similar sorts of things with the plagues on Egypt. And what we see from the text there is that he literally did that. It's not that God can't. It's not that God hasn't. But the book is so rich in symbolism that it's hard to say if this is just symbolic of some judgment that reaches all the people that affects their bodies or if this is an actual judgment of sores. God has done that before. Remember the story of the golden tumors. Anybody remember that? Do you remember the Hebrew word for tumors? Hemorrhoids. That's right, Doug. Thank you. God gave somebody hemorrhoids in the Old Testament as judgment. Enough said for verse two. Verses three and four. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. Oh, wait, let me back up for a moment. So do you see who is being judged in verse two? Those who had the mark of the beast and who worship his image. Remember, you might need to get previous sermons if you weren't here for them just a couple sermons ago. We talked about the Antichrist and his sway in the world, and those who choose to pledge allegiance and follow him, even though he's clearly against Jesus Christ, and he blasphemes the God of the universe. And even though God sent, in chapter 14, an angel who flew around the sky saying to all the inhabitants of the earth, do not follow the Antichrist, do not take the mark of the beast, do not turn against God and follow this false leader. If you do so, there's judgment for you, but don't do it. That was an extension of God's mercy, sending that angel to communicate it. So these are those who have knowingly turned away from God after all of his efforts to reach them. And they're being judged in that way. Verses three and four. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea dried. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. 
So again, is this figurative or actual? I'm not sure. But the point is this. Everything that people have come to count on to see as stable and steady and life-giving is challenged by God in the book of Revelation because humanity has a tendency to turn to those things instead of turn to God. If my finances are there, I'll I'll turn to them. I I don't need God. I can provide for myself. Water is there. I'll, I'll turn to it. That's my source of refreshment and life and healing and nourishment and all these other things. And we see continually in the book of Revelation, God coming against these things that people have the tendency to count on for security and safety and see as life giving. For those who have rejected God, his righteousness, grace, and mercy, his son, the Savior, God is showing them through these judgments the futility of life apart from him. And you'll remember, the life was set before them. That the Antichrist said to the world, if you don't take my mark upon you, which mark just speaks of pledge allegiance, if you don't pledge allegiance to me, If you don't bring yourself under my authority, then it's going to be hard for you to live in the world because you won't be able to buy or sell. Remember that? And meanwhile, the angel is flying around saying, don't do it. Don't pledge allegiance to the Antichrist. You have one who loves you. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the true Lord and Savior. I'm telling you, turn to Jesus. Don't turn to the Antichrist. This real future, but true throughout all times, and even proverbial struggle between right and wrong, dark and light, evil and good. And these people assumed, well, I, how, how can I live unless I turn to the Antichrist and pledge my allegiance to him? I won't be able to buy or sell. So in an effort to preserve themselves, they turned away from the living God to what seemed near intangible and necessary. And in reality, the way to life was to turn to God. And now they seal their fate. They absolutely refuse to do it. Skip a few verses. We'll come back to them. Look in verse eight. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat. Now here's the salient point. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. We see that again, verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. We see that again in verse 21, if you'll skip to that. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, because its plague was extremely severe. God has thus far been pouring out his wrath in a patient, progressive manner. He set before them life and death, dark and light, told them the path they should go by. There's a way that seems right to men, but in the way, the end is death. Choose the Lord. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a lamb who was slain. The narrow gate. Jesus, the only one who gave his life for us and rose from the dead. And they rejected that. 
And the finality and the fullness of their decision is evident here. They know the source of the plagues. They're not saying, oh my gosh, it's like the salmonella thing that I got from chicken or oh, the UV rays, you know, the atmosphere got thin and it's too hot. And we're getting... They know this is a direct hand of God. It says that. They know this is from God and they blaspheme God. Slander, to speak untruly, to speak ill of. They blaspheme God. Previous to this, The only one in the book who was blaspheming God was the Antichrist. Now, it's the general population. So we see the Antichrist sway on the population. But now it becomes a common response to blaspheme God for what's going on. And it says, and they did not repent so as to give glory to God. The fact that they did not means that they could have. There was still room for repentance. Even in this final moment, there was room for people to turn to God. And they did not repent. I want us to think about that for a moment. Look at this definition of repentance. To have a significant change of mind and as a result of life due to comprehending the consequences of sin. You know, one of the things that sin always endeavors to do with us and ostensibly for us, is to mask its consequences. We'll just leave that up there for a little bit, Diane. Sin is always wanting to mask its consequences. Sin never shows you its dirty side on the front end. It always tries to sell its benefits. Always tries to come off as helpful, necessary, placating, needed, justifiable, pretty, fun, excusable. Never shows you the backside, the dark side, the destruction. That's why we have to take God's word for it. That's why we need to pay attention when God calls something sin. You know, God calls things sin that we call entertainment. God calls things sin that we esteem incredibly popular. God calls things wicked that we call normal. What God is endeavoring to do and is doing in the book of Revelation is showing the world the ultimate consequences of sin to bring them to repentance. The consequences are multitudinous and there's all sorts of ones, temporal and eternal, and this is the wrath of God. They refuse to change their mind about sin. They refuse to agree with God on a definition of what is evil and what is good. And so, change their lives. Most of us in this room are Christians. Not all of us, most of us. This is informative for us because we, we, we live in a culture that makes this difficult. We live in a culture that's always muddying the waters. And listen, let's just be reasonable for a moment. We spend so much time listening to the messages of culture, being inundated and anesthetized with the things of culture, that it becomes difficult for us to discern right from wrong. There's a melding of evil and popular. 
I mean, most of us spend much more time with the messages and the images of culture than we do the messages and images of Scripture. And so it can can become difficult to change our minds and as a result have life change due to comprehending the consequences of sin because we can't even spot the sin half the time. And to do this is to go against the flow. It's to go against the flow. If someone had just said, okay, wait a minute. This is clearly the wrath of God. I see that everyone in the world right now is blaspheming God and the world leader is leading us in blasphemy and everyone's pledging his allegiance to him, but I'm not going with it. I'm pulling out of this thing. I'm seeing something here. I'm seeing right from wrong. We know from previous chapters and we know when we get to chapter 20 that that would have cost them dearly at this moment in the future. They would have been beheaded for their professed faith in Jesus Christ. And faith in Jesus Christ often costs us something today. Nothing of that magnitude in our world and in our culture. By world, I mean our area here. But in other places in the world, this is, that's, that's now. So the call of the Christian life is a call first to repentance. Here's how you become a Christian. You repent of your sins. You change your mind about sin. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And that brings about life transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit and by our own endeavoring to follow Jesus, to turn away from sin and to God. That's how the Christian life starts. But that is also, brothers and sisters, preaching to myself, how the Christian life is lived a lifestyle of repentance. Not that we need to be forgiven over and over again. Christ sacrifices once and for all. We're forgiven of our sins, cleansed, made holy before him once and for all. But we still need to continually, always in the process of transformation, need to be turning away from sin. Right, a changing of one's mind. Hasn't your experience been, for those of you that are seasoned saints, a little older in your Christianity, that there's things that you realize are not right before God and you don't do them now that seem perfectly fine to you 10 years ago? Isn't that part of the process of sanctification? That God, by his Holy Spirit and through his word, is always increasingly, because of love, revealing to us righteousness and leading us in paths of righteousness so that hopefully one year from now, there's things I'm unaware of now that then I'm going, gosh, that was a sinful attitude in my heart. I repent of that. I changed my mind about that. I was harboring that bitterness. I was harboring that hurt. I was harboring that offense. I was refusing to forgive. I was insisting on that entitlement. And now it all seems very rational to us with the help of the Holy Spirit and by letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us, giving ourselves to the word of God, we have our eyes open. A failure to open eyes is what we're seeing in this chapter. They knew it was from God, but it had no effect on them. Rather, they blasphemed and they refused to repent. Matthew 16, I'm reminded of this from this situation here. For whoever, words of Jesus, forever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Meaning a surrendering of our lives to Jesus Christ. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. They thought, well, if we pledge allegiance to the Antichrist and we follow after the tone and the tenor of this world, if we pursue the things that everyone else is pursuing, that will be life. And in pursuing those things, they forfeited their souls. Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Jesus told us there would be days like this. But these days have a profound purpose as it pertains to the glory of God. Look now backing up in verse 5. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous art thou, who art and who wast, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. Remember that persecution of the church was a primary figure during the time of the writing. It will be a primary reality toward the end of the world. And it's an increasing reality in our current world. They poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink. Look at these hard words. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Three important points there concerning the identity, a person of God. Number one, In verse 5, God is shown and declared to be righteous precisely because he does judge sin. Nobody in our culture wants a crooked judge. We hope that when a perpetrator of evil stands before the courts of this world, that justice will be served. Unless it's we are the ones who get off, we are so upset when those who deserve justice get off. We want righteous judges. How much more do we want God to be righteous? And God is shown to be righteous righteous precisely because he does judge sin. The idea of the word of righteous is morally right. And again, I'm beating a similar drum here, but it's helpful for me as I think about my own sin in my own life. How much do we, and we can even think about us as a broader culture in the world, how much do we really want God to be morally right in an absolute sense? Or wouldn't we rather that God was morally relative as it pertains to our sin? He's he's not morally relative. Our culture is morally relative. Bad news for you. God is not morally relative. God is morally right. Good news for you. God is not morally relative. God is morally right. And he shows himself to be morally right by harshly judging sin. If God didn't do that, then he wouldn't be morally right. A common question is, how can a good God allow for so many bad things in the world? Right? We hear it all the time and we ourselves think about it. And it's true. If God never judges what is bad, then God can't be good. If he never judges what is bad, then he can't possibly be good. The book of Revelation is good news for us. It shows us that God actually judges and deals with what is bad. So God shows himself to be good. That is a declaration of verse five. God is righteous because he has judged these things. Second point that we see from these few verses 
is that God will give people what they deserve. We can trust that and we can rest in that. We can also trust it in this way. No one will fall under the wrath of God that doesn't deserve it. We can trust God with that. Nobody will fall under God's wrath that does not truly deserve it. You know, judgment's a radical thing. I can't think of anyone better to trust with it than Jesus, who because of his life, or because of his love, excuse me, gave his life for rebels and sinners, for murderers and thieves, prostitutes and drunkards, oppressors, murderers. Jesus laid down his life because of the love of God and the mercy and the grace of God. Therefore, he is qualified to judge sin. And humanity will get what it deserves. Humanity has been offered what it doesn't deserve. You know what that is? Grace. That's what grace is. Justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, something good. They've also been offered mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve this, I'm going to let you off the hook, mercy. You deserve this, I'm going to give you something wonderful instead, grace. You deserve this, you're going to get it justice. And when mercy and grace have been refused, then only justice is left. There are no other things outside of those. And don't tell me that a fourth way is love. Love requires justice. Love invites grace. Love offers mercy. But there are only those three. And if grace and mercy are rejected, then only Justice remains, and God is just. And people will get what they deserve. But you can rest in that. Nobody will get wrath from God that doesn't deserve it. Or you cannot rest in that. Number three, God's judgments are true and righteous. This is something that we need to get for ourselves right now. For living now and trusting God in the future. God knows what is right. God knows what is wrong. God has clearly explained these things and revealed these things to us in his word. It's not as mysterious as culture would make it seem. It's not as confounding as our own hearts would suggest. It's not as unclear as our minds would think. God has shown us what is right. God has shown us what is wrong. The declaration from the throne is God's judgments are true and righteous. The problem in the book of Revelation with the people that refuse to repent is that they don't believe it. So they blaspheme God. They think God to be unjust, cruel. And I find that the problem within my Christian walk so much is I don't believe enough that God's judgments are true and right. It's easy for me to explain them away. 
It's easy for me to endeavor to excuse myself from the demands of God's truth. This is where perhaps we need to grow as God's people, as followers of Jesus Christ, to say along with verse 7, God's judgments are true and righteous. Whether I agree with them or not, boy, isn't that a big one in our culture right now? Definition of marriage. Issues of sexuality. Surely God is wrong. Who's going to stand up and say, well, I, I actually think God is right. You know, that's unpopular today. Give it a few more years. It might cost you everything to say that. If we're not convinced of it now, I don't know if we'll be convinced of it in the future when from all I can tell from Scripture, the heat will be turned up. There'll be more and more of an anti-Jesus sort of flow in the world, a move away from righteousness and truth. The call on the book of Revelation to the original audience was to stand firm on God's truth in the face of a culture of oppression, deception, and moral relativity. The call upon the audience right now is to stand firm in God's truth in the same sort of culture. And for those who will see the days of the book of Revelation, it's a clarion call. It's where the rubber meets the road. I'm reminded of Isaiah 55. I'll just read you a couple verses from it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word is eternal. God's word is true. God's word is sure. It doesn't always make sense to our culture. God's ways are not our ways. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it is death. And in the final few verses here, we see that there is an increase in the voice of opposition against truth. Verse 12, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon right, Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, unclean spirits, those are demons, like frogs, a picture of them being grotesque. I know frogs, some of them can be cute. (laughs) Not these. Verse 14, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for war of the great day of God, the Almighty. What that's saying right there is that there's coming an increased time of demonic deception. Under the sway of the Antichrist, 
who is under the sway of Satan, with the help of the false prophet, there's an increased pull away from God. This is a gathering of culture against God in a sort of war. This is a reference to the battle of Armageddon. There's a parenthetical phrase in verse 15, which is a reminder of the thesis of the book that we would stand firm and be ready for the return of the Lord. Verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. That means we're following, obeying, pursuing Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and they gather them together to the place in Hebrew, which is called Har-Mageddon or Armageddon. The quintessential ultimate battle between evil and good. The forces of this world under the ultimate leadership of Satan arrayed against Jesus Christ and his truth. It may be a real battle. It may be symptomatic of just the ultimate defeat of evil by good, Jesus Christ. We'll get to it when we get to chapter 19. But what we see is that In the last days, there will be an increase of demonic deception. From the mouth, these demons, these frogs come. Propaganda, naysaying, counter-truth, substitute truth, amended truth, your truth, my truth, different truth, deception. These days are not just to come. These days are now. We're living in days days of deception. Gosh, I guess if I could say one thing from the sermon, I would say read your Bible and obey it. That seems to become more and more clear to me that that's a call on the Christian. Read the scriptures and know that the scriptures are meant to be obeyed. For the times in which we are living are profound. And here we end verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. There's that other ending, that parallel ending in the book of Revelation. We'll get more wrath in verses seven, chapter 17 and 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man had come upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. And the great city was split in three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Every island fled away and mountains were not found. A great earthquake, pictures of chaos ensuing and the rebellion of man, the work of Satan and the judgments of God colliding in this future moment of history. It says there that Babylon is judged. That will be the subject of the next two chapters. John's point of reference for that was clearly Rome, right? John is writing things that were in direct confrontation to Rome, the governing authority of the day. So this is kind of code language, Babylon. Babylon is always a picture in scripture of oppressive world systems against God's people. For John in that day, it would have been Rome. In the future days, it'll be a different world power under the Antichrist. And it's always offering a substitute to obedience of Jesus Christ. It's always luring us along with these frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet toward rampant materialism, the ultimate pursuit of wealth by any means, by deceitful means. 
It's always pulling us towards self-exaltation and the oppression of others. It's always getting us to exalt creation over the creator. It's always telling us that power and oppression are the right way rather than mercy and compassion. That is the stuff of Babylon. That was the stuff of Rome. That will be stuff of the world system when Christ returns, that he will confront these things that are common to our world will too be judged. We'll see in the next two chapters. These are things that are common to all of us. How do I get ahead in the world? How do I pay my bills? How do I have a better reputation? How can I acquire more stuff? How can I fulfill my dreams? All stuff that we have to deal with, much of it fine stuff, the message is simply this. It is not ultimate stuff. It too will have its day of judgment. And those who pursue those things as ultimate and the culture that forms itself around those things as ultimate wealth and power and oppression will too be judged. And so I'm reminded in my own life about the pull of those things upon me. After all, I, like you, want more stuff. I, like you, would be happy with more money. I, like you, want a good reputation. I, like you, have dreams that always make me look good that I would love to see fulfilled. That's part of the human experience. The call of the Christian experience is to let those desires be sanctified, informed and formed by putting Christ in his proper place by agreeing with the declaration from the throne that all of God's judgments and perspectives are true and right and mine need to be amended, repented of, and fixed in light of God's word. We'll just end with this scripture. It's been helpful for me. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. Love, the word there is agape. It means don't form our identity around and get our self-worth from. If anyone loves the world in that way, the love of the Father is not in him. He's not experiencing God's love because God's love is so wonderful, it expels those lesser loves. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, the stuff of Babylon. The world is passing away. We'll see that in the next two chapters. And also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The kingdom of righteousness, justice, and love. That is what we're called to. Let's pursue it now, not just then. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for these reminders. I just ask that by grace you would help us to live according to these things. I'm thinking of my own life, Lord, and my own disagreements with your truth. Surely I'm wrong and you're right. My own rationalizations of my behavior, surely those are to be repented of. Help us to think under the leading of the Holy Spirit of how we ought to be obeying and following you for you love us and you gave your life for us and you saved us and you've delivered us from darkness and brought us into light. So we ought to walk in the light. Help us to walk in the light in our marriages, 
in our careers, in our consuming, in our working, in our playing. Help us to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.